and I, I appreciate the praise team. And aren't, aren't they doing a great job? Really appreciate it. Pastor Joe. And uh, we're going to begin a series tonight, and I, I'm going to call this Sex, Lies, and Consequences. Sex, Lies, and Consequences. And um, let's, look at, let's look at some notes here, uh, a couple of verses we're going to read at the very beginning. And tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get everybody here, singleness, celibacy, and wedded bliss. You're in one of those categories, or you're not a human being. So let's stand together, and we're going to read uh, out of Genesis. We're going to start at the very beginning in the genesis of things. And I want us to say a prayer. You know, the devil is, uh, uses sex and capitalizes on people's ignorance of what the Bible says about it. That uh, is how he's able to ensnare so many people. And I don't think, I've been preaching for 37 years. That's hard for me to believe, but it's true. I started when I was 18. And in 37 years, the church has completely changed in many, many ways. It's just a different animal. And the attack that is coming against the culture and coming against the church in the arena of sex is something I never thought I would see. It is to such a level that if teachers, preachers, pastors don't answer it, many of their people are going are to become ensnared in sexual lies. Uh, my calling is not to give you my opinion. My calling is to open up to you the Word of God. My calling is to take that Word that we're about to read, study it, break it down, do word studies, do context studies, and do my very best to tell you what God was telling you. So I'm not here tonight to give an opinion, and I'm not going to give opinion in the next few weeks. I'm going to just teach the Word. And when it goes over radio, oh my, because I'm going to deal with everything. I'm not going to leave any stone unturned, okay? So I'm, let's get into teaching tonight, and let's look at what it says here, Genesis 1, singleness, celibacy, and wedded bliss. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and what? He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. And now let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the word of God tonight. And I pray, Lord, that the, the word will renew our minds, that the word will dispel myths and fables and deceptions, false messages and teachings that have come to us in the, in the arena of sexuality. And I pray, Lord, that you will open our understanding and make this church a people who understand what the Word says so that we can walk in victory and not in the devil's bondage. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Will you put your hand over your heart and say, Lord, I receive your Word with meekness. Let it change my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell him, perk up and listen, you're going to need this. Guaranteed. Now, I want you to notice the original uh, command of God to the first couple was to be sexual. He said, I want you to increase in number. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and to give them a little bit of incentive, he made the act of procreation pleasurable and desirable. And it's called sex. It's not a dirty word. Now, what did God think about sex? Since he made it, God made sex. The devil didn't come up with it, and neither did you or me. God made it. What did he say about it? God saw that all that he had made, and it was what, everybody? Very good. Now, he had just told them to be fruitful and multiply, so one of the things for sure he was talking about was sexuality. He said it was very good. So, first thing I want us to realize tonight is sex was God's idea. God made sex, and he said it is good. It's a good thing. Sex is not wrong, and sex is not evil. Now, you know, mankind has gone through all kinds of different cycles and phases in their views and concepts of sex. And uh, there was a time like the Victorian era where, where the Victorian era where sex was considered uh, wrong or evil or, or uh, something not to be talked about, something not to be celebrated. But that's not the way God sees it. God looked at it and said it's good. And here's the catch though. Like virtually everything that is created, by God or man, sex was created for a context. Sex has a context. And here's where the devil gets into our culture and gets into the church. In the next few weeks, I want you to buckle your seatbelts because I'm going to talk about how the devil is so twisted and perverted God's original idea. And so tonight I'm going to start very basic and go from there. We've got to understand at the very outset here, and I'm going to repeat this all through the series, that sex was created for a context. All right? Now, let me give you an illustration that's very simple, easy to understand, but this is really the way that it is. Take cars. Cars are incredible creations. They make life easier. They open up all kinds of potential to see sights, go distances, unheard of in former generations when they just crossed a certain uh, small amount of territory in wagon trains and so on and so forth. But even though a car is an incredible creation, cars are surrounded with contextual rules. And you obeyed them on the way here. You can't drive over the speed limit. That's one of the rules surrounding cars. You can't go the wrong way down a one-way. That's a rule around surrounding cars. You have to have a license to operate one. And thank God, lately, you've got to have insurance or it gets towed. If you've ever been hit by somebody that didn't have insurance... That's a big amen. You can't drive under the influence of anything that impairs your judgment and so on because though cars are incredible creations, they are created to be appreciated within a context of restrictions and limitations, parameters and barriers. Now that's just cars. And if you don't obey the rules, you're going to answer to a higher authority, a judge an officer, a ticket, jail bars, okay? So we have no problem with this. This is, this is simple. This is elementary, dear Watson, okay? Uh, we have no understanding, uh, trouble understanding these things, and very willingly we go to driver's ed, don't we? We go to driver's ed to learn the rules about driving a car. That's why every pastor in the country ought to be teaching sex ed because the Bible's full of talk about sex, and I don't know about you, but what I've seen schools are teaching lately, I don't want my kid to learn from the school. 
I want them learning from the Word of God, which talks about it a great deal, all right? But our culture, here's what our culture is communicating to you and to me, and it's, it has hit you this week. It's probably hit you today. That sex, which is far more complicated and important than cars, has no rules. Or that you make up your own rules. That you can operate it in the context of your choosing. It's up to you. It's how you feel. Sex is now relative to the situation, to the person, to what you're feeling, and what we have allowed to happen in our culture, and it's made its way into the church more than it sure used to, is that sex is a relative thing. It depends on the person, depends on the situation, depends on the emotions. And emotion trumps truth in our culture. And that's just a recipe for disaster because the Bible says that there is a way that seems right to a human being, but the end of it is death. So if you're leaning on your feelings, you better get into the Word. You're headed for death-like situations because your flesh is never going to lead you the way that God would lead you. Have you realized that? Your flesh is never going to lead you the way that God is going to lead you. Your flesh will lie to you, and nothing will lie to you more than your emotions. And your emotions can masquerade as the Holy Spirit better than any single thing. <clears throat> now, can you operate sex in the, in the text of your choosing, in the context of your choosing? No. But the temptation in our culture is take it out of its God-given context. And you don't answer to anybody. You only answer to yourself. Uh, and that if you do take it out of the God-given, word-given context, uh, uh, there's not going to be any consequences. It doesn't matter how you operate it. Uh, you're not going to get ticketed. You're not going to answer to a higher power. You are you. You are yourself. You're an island. And whatever you choose to do with your sexuality is your business. I've got to tell you, folks, that is just a bald-faced lie. That's why I call this sex lies and consequences. When the culture tells you that, when the TV shows tell you that, when magazines and books and Hollywood tells you that, they are wrong. So well, how can so many people be wrong? Well, Jesus said, wide is the gate, and many there be that go in to the road that leads to destruction. He said, narrow is the gate, straightened is the way that leads to life, and few there are that find it. So if you're looking to follow the majority... Look at the lemmings. Lemmings are little fur-like creatures, little rat-like, rodent-like creatures. And every year, they gather together in a mass and run off a cliff. Now, if I'm a lemming watching them, and because they're all running off a cliff to their destruction, and I say, well, the majority is always right, and I run with them, I'm going to splat just like them. I'm going to tell you, our country is a country of lemmings. They're running off the cliff. They're falling to destruction, and just because it's the majority doesn't mean they're right. Let me tell you who's right. Christ is right every single time. Jesus can be leaned on, trusted, believed, walked with. You can stand on his word, and believe me, it will never steer you wrong. Our model is not the majority. Our model is not the culture. Our model is Christ and the word of God. Now... <clears throat> So don't be a lemming, be wiser than that. Now here's the principle. God made sex for one context, marriage. Now we're going to see this over and over in the next few weeks, but let me just go into this now. Listen to Hebrews 13, 4. 
Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually what? Now, I want you to begin to catch something here as we read these verses. That time and time and time again, the Word of God says that sex outside of marriage is immoral. That's what it says. And so let's read it from another version. Honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband. Uh, God draws a firm line against casual and illicit sex. Give me the next few weeks to talk to you about this and not just tonight because I can feel the hackles rising in some of you already. You're going, well, I can't do this. Uh, th this is not realistic. This is not something that I can handle. I'm out there in the real world, not in church 24-7, and uh, this is just not real. Oh, it's very real. And I want you to listen to what God has to say about it because if you don't, you may close your ears and your heart off to it to your peril. So listen to it, because sex is, believe me, very important to God. Very important. And it's directly linked to your spiritual health. Now watch this. Here's the Amplified Bible. Let marriage be held in honor, esteemed, worthy, precious, of great price, and especially dear in all things. And thus let the marriage bed be undefiled, kept undishonored. For God will do what, everybody? Read it with me. Judge and punish the unchaste, all guilty of sexual vice and adulterous. Notice, God watches over people's sexuality and sexual lifestyles, and the Bible is so clear, and you're going to see it in the weeks uh, following, that there is a punishment that comes from breaking this law or these moral codes given by God, just like there is reward for keeping them. There's a reward. Now, Scripture is very clear about sex within marriage. Now, let me just talk about that for a minute. It's going to shock you how much the Bible talks about it. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. You ought to read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 7. Now, this is Paul talking, and here's what he's... Paul, who was single. And here's what he says. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of the temptation to what, everyone? Immorality. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, let's follow Paul's thinking, which is Scripture. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, let's follow his thinking. Why should every man have his own wife and every wife her own husband? To avoid immorality. Now, implied in even that verse is if there is sexual activity taking place outside the marriage bond, the Bible calls it immorality. He goes on. He says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. That's why it's a sin to withhold sex for punishment within marriage. Now, I'm not expecting tons of amens here tonight. <laughs> Woohoo! And jumping up and all of this. It's going to be real quiet in here, and I'm fully prepared for it. <laughs> 
But I want you to notice, and this is another thing we're going to see about sexuality. Here's what we're going to see. First of all, why do you walk in holiness when it comes to your sexuality? Because your body is not yours. See, it's not just a matter of you can't do this and you can't do that. It is you can't do this and you shouldn't do that so that you can do this and can do that. God closes a door to open another door. God will, will put the ixnay on one thing so that we can be free to walk in His calling. So the, the whole reason that our sexuality matters to God is because God owns your body. And we're going to get into this next time, next week. But it says in Corinthians, the, the sex book, the sex letter, uh, talks a lot about sex. It says, you're, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So our body is the house of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us. And Paul's going to make the, the case that anything you take your body into, you take Jesus into it with you. So this is why it's so important. God's a holy God. Now let's go on and look at Pauline thinking. If something is of Paul, we call it Pauline. So let's look at Paul, the Pauline teaching on sexuality. He goes and he says, um, the, the, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body and neither does the husband. Not only does God own your body, but your spouse has authority over your body. He says, do not refuse one another except perhaps by agreement for a season that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again. He means sexually. Why? Lest Satan tempt you through your lack of self-control. Well, tempt you to what? Tempt you to immorality. This is the Bible teaching. Now, Paul goes on and he says, I say this by way of concession, not of command. I wish that all were as myself am. But each has his own special gift from God, of uh, one of one kind and one of another. Now, these passages, I'm going to take these passages because they are so powerful uh, in talking about sexuality. They, they give us really four things. Let's look at them. First of all, celibacy. The Bible talks about celibacy. And I want you to notice what Paul says about it. In Paul's view, celibacy is a gift to be celebrated. Everybody say uh, amen. Now, I'm showing you what the Bible says. Now, the culture says, you're insane, man. You're crazy. I'm not going to be celibate. You live once and you die. I'm going to enjoy everything God gave me. But see, if you don't come in under the will of God for your sexuality, there is pleasure in sin for a season. But I promise you, when sexual mores and sexual morality, according to the Word of God, is broken, there is a price. You'll find pleasure in sin for a season. But you will be visited with consequences. That's why I call this sex lies and consequences. You know, Hollywood's not going to tell you the truth about what happens uh, uh, behind closed doors in the private lives of the people who have bought into this, my body is my own, I'll do with it what I want. They don't tell you the truth about it. Culture's not going to tell you the truth about it. School's not going to tell you the truth about it. I'm going to. Now, you might even call 1 Corinthians 7 Paul's manifesto for the unmarried life. 
When he says in verse 1, look what he says. He says, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. He means the same thing he does in verse 8. He says, to the unmarried and the widow, I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do. Now listen carefully. Quote, it is good not to touch a woman means it's good to be single. You singles in here. If Paul was up here teaching, he'd say to you, you're blessed. He'd say to you, celebrate your celibacy. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. The Bible's view of singleness is at total odds with the modern view. That's why you can't listen to the culture's view. The culture, can I tell you all the truth? The culture right now is in a free fall morally. We're going to crash so hard. I can't tell you how hard this culture is going to crash. We have gone from sexual immorality to outright propagandistic perversion. And believe me, the payday is coming someday, and it's going to be brutal. If I had the time, I'd go into what history tells us about cultures that have gone where we're going right now. They never last. If you give up God's morality, that culture, as a culture, as a society, the culture, the society never lasts. It, It caves. But now, Paul was so completely committed to a life of celibacy that he longed for everybody to have it. That's what he says. To Paul, to be single was to be celibate. The reason he celebrated the single life is exactly the opposite of why many people today love singleness and will even break up marriages in order to be single again. Why do they do it? Today's singleness is cherished by so many because it brings maximum freedom They think. No one cramps your style. No one tells you to put your dirty socks in the clothes hamper. You're a free agent. No one tells you to wash the dishes. You answer to nobody. And you can play the sexual field. I was just reading this week a couple of, you know, high-profile movie star divorces. I think a couple of them lasted a few months this time. And what were they doing? All the stories we're talking about was the different people they had immediately gone and started dating. I mean, play in the field. Hot dog, I'm free again. To do what? To go play the field. Sow my wild oats. And it's, it's just so completely anti-biblical. Now watch this. Paul cherished his singleness, not because he was free to go do what he wanted, but because it put him utterly at the disposal of the Lord Jesus. Listen to what he says. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. Every married man in here say amen. And what about the unmarried woman? An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Uh, Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And you know what Paul promised to the married people? You will have tribulation. Did you know that? Philipsis, the word. You will have tribulation if you marry. So Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talked about 
the blessing of singleness. Now, I don't know if you're single here tonight, I want to sow a seed into your mind from the Word of God that if you look at it right, if you look at it biblically, you are a free agent in terms of pursuing Jesus undistracted by anything. And that's the way the Bible sees it. Here's the principle. Singleness, according to the Word of God, frees one to be an undistracted slave for Christ. The contemporary view promotes singleness but not chastity because it frees from slavery to the marriage. But Paul promotes singleness and chastity with it because it frees for slavery, namely slavery to Jesus Christ. See how the word renews your mind? Because let me promise you, in the flesh, you don't think this way. I guarantee you, you don't think this way. A lot of you, most of you, at least a lot of you that are single in here just want to get married. Some of you that are married just want to be single. I'm telling you the truth, I know that. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because we don't want to have to minister till one in the morning. But it's funny, the myth of the greener grass. If you're single, you think it's going to be better married. If you're married, you think it's going to be better single. And you got buyer's remorse both ways. But Paul says you're supposed to remain in the calling wherein Christ finds you. And here he's telling us that as a single man, you ought to see your singleness as an opportunity to be a slave for Christ. Amen. Now, God has called many of you to a life of celibacy, at least for now. If you're single, you're called to be celibate during this time. There is no if, and, or but about it. If you're single, you're called to celibacy. Amen. Now, the teaching of this passage for you is that this is a gift to be celebrated, not a burden to be tolerated. That's the teaching of the Word of God. You should be dreaming, as many of you are, and I, and I know I've got singles in this church that think this way, how your freedom can be maximized for the cause of Christ here and around the world. That's what you ought to be dreaming about, excited about. Because when you do, if or when you do marry, you're not going to be as free to come and go as you want. You know, it's mainly single people who are meeting here at 8.30 in the morning on Sundays to pray. Jeff Kelly, who, who works in this church, lives up here because he got nowhere else to go. He's single. Where are you, Jeff? I told him I'm going to build him a place where he can pitch a tent. But anyway, you should be dreaming about this, how you can maximize your life for Christ right now when you are so free. That's the way Paul saw it. So he saw it as an opportunity, not a burden. Now here is uh, the second thing about celibacy according to these verses. Celibacy is not for everybody. Not everybody is called a celibacy with Paul. Listen to verse 7. I wish, Paul says, that all were as I am, but each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And Jesus said the same thing. He said there are eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sake. And, and he said, but not everybody can do this. Not everybody is called to this. As much as Paul would like to command or commend celibacy to everybody, he defers to the wisdom of God who calls some to marriage. Celibacy is not for everybody. Now, marriage, on the other hand, 
Why does he say, what is one of the purposes of marriage? Let's look at it. He says it's to be a dam against the flood of two things, fornication and adultery. Now first, marriage protects from fornication. Now what's fornication? Fornication comes from a Greek word, pornuo. Now what do you think we get from pornuo? Pornography. Fornication is different from adultery in this way. Adultery is sex with anyone outside of your marriage, period. That's adultery. It's very specific. But fornication is a much broader term. It deals with any sex at all outside of marriage. It's broader. It deals with homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, um, premarital sex. Fornication covers the gamut. And the first thing that, that Paul said marriage guards against is fornication. Marriage protects from that. Now, after saying in verse 1 that it's a good calling not to be sexually involved at all, that is, celibacy is good, Paul says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So this is a clear, clear prohibition of premarital sexual intercourse. He's saying, well, let's just look at it. Paul most definitely had in mind premarital sex between engaged couples when he prohibited immorality in this chapter. You say, well, Pastor, where do you get that? I'm going to show you where I get it. Look, for example, at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 36 and 37. Listen to him. He says, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, that's first century lingo for the person you're engaged to, promised to, going to marry. If you think you're behaving yourself, uh, not behaving yourself properly towards the, the betrothed, which is literally the word for virgin as well, if his passions are strong, Paul goes on to say, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. Now he's meddling with your dating. He's meddling with your dating. Now we, we just throw betrothal out now. Let's just say dating. You're dating. You're promised to one another. You're engaged. You got that engagement ring. And so here's what you say. You say, well, since we're engaged, God understands. Notice he's saying that if you can't see one another and keep it pure, it's better to marry than burn with frustrating passion that leads to sin. I said, I'm a teacher. I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm teaching the text. And this is what it says. Well, oh, nobody does that. Oh, yes, they do, dear. Yes, they do. Don't let the culture lie to you. There are thousands of people who keep it pure before they're married. Don't let the culture lie to you. You're not going to get the truth from radio, TV, or film. That's what he's saying. He's saying to, to, to the men, if you can't see her and keep it pure, go on and, and marry. Forget the betrothal. You're not keeping it pure. And I, I'm gonna, We're getting into that. Give me a few weeks with this now because I'm going to talk about how in the world you would swing that. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, Paul goes on to say, listen to him. If you're firmly established in your heart, being under no necessity, but having your desire 
your passion under control and have determined this in your heart to keep her betrothed for a while and not follow through with marriage, he says, you have done well. If you can keep it pure, you've done well. Now this takes us back to the point of verse 1. And what does verse 1 say? It's well not to touch a woman. He's not talking about giving somebody a love hug. He's not talking about the greeting time after the first song. He's talking about sexually. Now let's be honest. Is it not clear when Paul teaches about premarital sex for engaged couples or what he teaches about it? Is it not clear what he's teaching? All you got to do is read it. I tell people, if you don't agree with me, you're not disagreeing with me. Go read it yourself. Read it any version you want to. He teaches that singleness is to be preferred, as we saw earlier. But if sexual desire is strong, well, I went too far there. No pun intended. Let's see. But if, but if sexual desire is strong, what? Now, is this what we say to ourselves? Well, you know what? We're engaged. God understands. So go ahead and sleep together since you're committed to each other and have enjoyed every other form of intimacy. Is that right? No. He says, if the desire is that strong, get married. Now, here's the, the principle. Premarital sexual intercourse for engaged couples is not a Christian option. The same thing is clear from our text in verse 2. What does it say? Because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He does not say that getting engaged is the solution to sexual temptation. Well, let's get engaged. Then we can do it and we're okay. We're engaged. He does not say that a verbal commitment prior to marriage justifies the act of sexual intercourse. It doesn't. He does not say, go ahead, God understands. I've had so many people tell me that. We know God understands. We've heard from God. Well, let me tell you, no, you haven't. <laughs> because God won't contradict his word. Hello, church. He won't contradict his word. So you didn't hear from God. Or how about this one? Go ahead, you're married in the eyes of God. Shack up. I'm amazed how many Christians shack up. I'm amazed. Well, we love each other. God has put his seal on it. We wouldn't have this love if God wasn't involved. It's from the Holy Ghost. God is love. And, and this supernatural love I have for this person wouldn't be here if God were not involved. So surely he understands because already we're married in his eyes. No, you're not. Did you know the, the typical sexual relationship outside of marriage last two years? Sexuality has got to have the commitment and bond of holy matrimony to keep it strong and to keep it real and to keep it sanctified and keep it blessed. I want to promise you something. You can poo-poo this and go out and say, well, he's crazy, he's archaic, he's old-fashioned. Well, I'm just teaching you the Word. So you can say that about the Word, but don't say it about me. 
Because I'm just teaching the Word. But you can go out and say that. But I promise you, if you go into sexual sin, there will not be an anointing on your life. It won't be there. God won't bless you like He will if you walk in purity. There is a blessing on purity. And God can help you to walk in purity. Now, he says this, if your desire for sexual relations with your fiancé is that strong, go ahead and get married. And that way, it is sanctified, and it is right, and it is blessed, and God can smile on it. Now, the next thing he says about marriage, it's a dam against adultery. Verses 3 through 5, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, here we go again, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Don't refuse one another except perhaps by agreement for a season that you may devote yourselves to prayer, uh, but then come together again, lest Satan do what? Tempt you through lack of self-control. Now, it's clear from this text that good sexual relations in marriage are intended as a dam against adultery. Husbands and wives have a duty to offer sexual relations to each other in such a way that the temptation of adultery is significantly weakened. You didn't know the Bible talked about this stuff, did you? This is 1 Corinthians 7. This is how real God is with you and me. The implication of this passage is that husbands and wives should satisfy each other sexually so that their eyes and hearts do not roam after satisfaction elsewhere. I love author John Piper. He's one of my favorites. And uh, he offers three elements to this satisfaction in marriage. And here they are. First one, the frequency of sexual relations. Now look what he says. In verse 5, Paul addresses the frequency of sexual intimacy. He says that married couples should not abstain very long from sexual relations lest they fall prey to the temptation of adultery. Frequency is one element that makes up the satisfaction of sexual relations. Now, I know what you're thinking, and I'm not going to pull an Ed Young on you. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go Google it. Ed, Pastor Ed Young. You say, well, well how often is enough? It, okay, here's the answer. Often enough. Everybody's different. Every couple's different. I'm not about to tell you how often is enough or what frequency means whatever gets the job done that's enough and I'm not trying to be funny I'm just trying to be real but I guess I was funny Tony you sure you don't want to come up here <laughs> all right Now, here's the second thing Piper goes into. He says, physical attraction. Another uh, element to sexual satisfaction in a marriage would be whether a husband and wife are physically attracted to each other. I admit, says Piper, that this is a very sensitive and very complex area. It is sensitive because there are many things about ourselves we can't change and others that are hard to change. Nevertheless, if it is true that being physically attractive to each other is part of what makes sexual relations satisfying, then I think this text implies that husbands and wives should have a spiritual duty to try to be attractive to each other. 
You don't say, well, I snagged him. Now I just let myself go. And you guys, you can't say, well, I got her. She said I do. And let your Billy beer gut grow. I really believe you ought to take care of yourself. None of us compete, can compete. And let me be clear about this. None of us can compete with the sex symbols of our day. And have you ever seen them without makeup? That's just a thought. <laughs> I saw one time actresses, you know, who are famous for looking good with makeup, and then they caught them in certain situations where the makeup wasn't on. And it was one of these. <gasps> it can't be. But it is. Kind of made you feel better. They're usually airbrushed, and, and what you see is not what you get. <laughs> All right. Now, and we shouldn't try to compete with those airbrushed pictures. But surely the biblical way is a balance between a nervous self-consciousness about every wrinkle and pound and gray hair on the one side and on the other side, a thoughtless negligence that gives no attention to the way our partner would like for us to dress or eat or bathe or act in public. I really believe that. Now, the exhortation of this scripture is that we should be sexually satisfying to our spouses in order to head off the temptation to seek satisfaction elsewhere. Now, Piper closes by writing, Let me insert a warning, he says. Don't infer from this that if your partner does not satisfy you, you have the right to go seek satisfaction elsewhere. Marriage is infinitely more than sex. I'm going to say that again. Marriage is infinitely more than sex. The two have become one in spirit. And a disappointment in that area is not an honorable discharge from the relationship. And then a third element to sexual satisfaction within marriage is this one, the overall quality of the relationship. Hear me on this one. Besides frequency of sexual relations and attractiveness to each other, satisfaction also depends on the overall quality of the relationship. That's why you never marry someone based on looks alone. Never. If there is anger, or bitterness, or resentment, or hurt feelings, the sex is going to shut down. We don't usually touch each other when those things are there, let alone embrace. So you've got to keep the relationship clear. And this is why we offer Intimate Encounters class. And they are going to have way more people than, he, than Frank thought they would. I think now we're up to 34 and growing. So believe me, folks, the relationship is the key. Now, um, so this text is also an exhortation to humble ourselves and repent and seek forgiveness and renewal in our marriages, relationally, or everything else is gone. Now, here's a final thought. We don't live in a culture that provides the kind of encouragement and support for lifelong marriage commitment that it used to. It's long gone. In fact, the forces around us are constantly suggesting that we're fools to stay in a troubled relationship. Don't even fool with it. What they don't tell you is if you leave a troubled relationship without really working out the issues, you're just going to carry them in the next one. And it's funny how that next spouse is going to remind you of the first one. <laughs>
I thought I left you back there. Where'd you come from? The church must therefore double its efforts, the church, and we're, and we're doing that, to create a community where another message and another power is the air we breathe, not the air of this culture. So far then, here's what we've seen tonight. Celibacy is a gift to be celebrated. Celibacy is not for everybody. Marriage is a dam against the flood of fornication and adultery because it offers God's way to satisfy sexual desire. Now next time, I'm going to deal with million-dollar definitions, what those confusing sexual words mean, and we're going into some deep waters. Let's stand together, can we? Somebody just said, you already in deep waters. <laughs> oh, I know that. But I ask you now, how far would you have to look to find this kind of message in that culture? You'd have to look all day and night and all week and all year. It's not there. Our culture's in a free fall, but the church is going to grow the opposite direction. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, I just pray. I pray that, Lord, you will help us to come to terms with what, with what the Bible teaches about our sexuality, with what the Bible teaches about all of the false messages bombarding the church door today. Help us to embrace your word and embrace your way. Now, I'm going to ask you to breathe a prayer to the Lord. If your life and your sexuality is being lived out tonight in a way contrary to what the Scripture taught us, would you take a minute and say, Lord, I want your way. Help me to embrace the Word of God because I know that if I walk in the Word, I will walk on the water. Let God be true and every man a liar. Would you tonight give your sexuality to the Lord, your marriage to the Lord, your attitudes about sexuality within or outside of marriage to the Lord and ask Him to speak to you and to set you on solid ground there if need be. We're going to sing through one time. Thank you, Lord.